Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Liberal Arts Citizenship and the Future of the Republic. Please welcome Bridget Wagner, Vice President of Policy Promotion at the Heritage Foundation. Good evening. Welcome to those who've joined us in person here at the Heritage Foundation and those who've joined us online for this very special program in cooperation with the University of Dallas. Um, tonight we'll be covering liberal arts, citizenship, and the future of the Republic. American civil society is in a moment of crisis. Knowledge of our past is abysmal. Angry calls ring out for radical change. And an assault against Western heritage is underway across the nation. National and indeed civilizational confidence has fallen to new lows. Students cannot explain the origin of individual rights, the purpose of the separation of powers, or even answer whether the nation has a right to exist at all. Schools have become playgrounds for political games and radical social indoctrination. It's no wonder that we are suffering a dearth of civic interest, much less civic virtue. Thankfully, there are lights of reason holding out amidst the darkness of cynicism and ideology. Across the country, families and teachers are rediscovering liberal arts education, a tradition that flourished in communities as disparate as ancient Athens and medieval Paris, and now is held aloft in some might say unlikely cities like Hillsdale, Michigan, Lander, Wyoming, and Dallas, Texas. Charter schools, classical academies, and universities alike are turning to the liberal arts to give their students a firm foundation in grammar, logic, and rhetoric, allowing them to come to their own conclusions and to craft their arguments logically and eloquently. It is here that we find students who are confident but humble, reasoned but enthusiastic, persuasive but not argumentative, doing all in the pursuit of truth. Perhaps it is here also that we might find the antidote for our cultural crisis. And that brings us to tonight's panel. I'm pleased to welcome four enthusiasts of the liberal arts tradition to speak to us about the role it plays in our cultural and civic fabric. Dr. Kevin Roberts is the president of the Heritage Foundation and previously served as the CEO of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Dr. Roberts has long taken an interest in rigorous liberal arts education founding the John Paul the Great Academy in Lafayette, Louisiana, and serving as the president of Wyoming Catholic College. In his new role at Heritage, Dr. Roberts continues to stress the importance of the liberal arts in the formation of good citizens and a robust civil society. Dr. Jonathan Sanford is the president of the University of Dallas, previously serving as the dean of the Constantine College of Liberal Arts and later as university president of provost Dr. Sanford possesses a rich understanding of UD's focus on the liberal arts and the school's position as inheritor of the Western tradition. 
Dr. Sanford is also, also serves as professor of philosophy, inspiring his students in the pursuit of truth while promoting UD's reputation as a bastion of classical liberal arts education. Dr. Ms. Melissa Michella is an associate professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America, and she recently served with us here at Heritage as a visiting scholar in our B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies. Uh, with a focus on natural law, biomedical ethics, and the moral and political status of the family, Dr. Mascella, her work has been published in a variety of publications, including the Journal of Medical Ethics, the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, and the New York Times. And joining us as our moderator this evening is Dr. Gerard Wegemer, a professor of history and the founding director of the Center for Thomas More Studies at the University of Dallas. Dr. Wegemer's classes on Thomas More, the Reformation and the Renaissance draw his students into discussions of the relationship of the liberal arts, the pursuit of virtue, and good governance. Dr. Wegemer will moderate a discussion with our three additional speakers, and then we will open the floor to questions from our audience. So please join me in welcoming our guests this evening. Thank you for coming to this conversation uh, on liberal arts, citizenship, and the future of the Republic. To begin, what would each of you say are the most significant threats to our society that liberal education can help address? Dr. Sanford, could you begin our conversation? I'd be happy to. And first, let me thank everyone for being here. And I think we have about 200 uh, listeners on our, on our uh, the virtual realm. Um, wherever you are, thanks for joining us. The um, the question, you know, what, what are what are the most significant threats to um, our culture that liberal education can help address? And and I'll, I'll focus my brief remarks on on three main areas. The first is is one of the the symptoms that perhaps gets the most discussion in uh, the media today, and, and that's the cancel culture, protest culture. But what what's going that going on beneath the surface? With respect to um, the kind of agitations that we see around campus, there's there's a, a a loss of the critical art of rational engagement, rational disagreement. We've lost the ability to argue without quarreling, and I am convinced that the best formation for cultivating that art is to be found within a liberal arts institution. Students learn how to engage various interpretations of a text in a rigorous fashion in small class sizes. They pull things apart. They disagree with each other. They learn how to articulate their disagreements in a way that does not provoke the kind of, of easy sloganism that is so rampant on our campuses this, this uh, period of time. So um, attendant to that, I would say, um, as part of a solution, is students within a, a liberal arts university that's really worthy of the name hone themselves to the truth, right? It's, it's not just learning how to, how to argue, how to cultivate a certain set of skills that will be of use to them as they grow older. It's really learning how to be attentive to the truth, to be working under the conviction that there is an answer to be found. And it matters what kind of of professors you have to uh, provide the guidance needed. The second area 
of significant cultural disarray and confusion that, um, um, you know, it, it's, it's certainly on our campuses, but it's, it's widespread, I would say, is, is the, the privatization of religion, the way in which faith has been put to the side and treated as though it's just a matter of personal preference, just like everything else, right? And um, I'm a longtime reader of First Things. Um, uh, John Richard Newhouse has been focusing on this theme for many years and, and uh, since his passing, Rusty Reno and, and other writers. But universities have a particular role to play in bringing faith back into the public square by bringing faith into a serious dialogue with reason. Right? Now, it matters what kind of liberal arts university you have. That is to say, being a faith-based institution provides you with a particular narrative when reflecting upon a tradition that itself is full of conflict, that's full of disagreement, right? Plato was a, a fierce critic of Homer, and Aristotle was um, a critic of Plato, and Augustine had certain reservations about drawing too deeply from Greek and fellow Roman authors, and Aquinas does not agree with Augustine on every point. And, and there are, are many other thinkers I could bring into this particular story that make clear that the history of our tradition is, is a history of argument over a long period of time with a lot of conflicting points of view. And the, the, the role that faith plays there is twofold, I would say. On the one hand, there's a, a narrative particularly within a Catholic liberal arts university, which the University of Dallas is, the, the, the narrative, it's, it's not triumphalistic, right? Um, but rather it's one that beckons the student to be able to see that there is a correct position with controverted matters. You don't want to get there too quickly. You won't get there at all, really, in terms of, of grasping the truth of the matter if it's just foisted upon you. Right? A student needs to learn how to be oriented or right, to see things with the eyes that are part and parcel of the human set of capacities. The, the, the second um, way in which I think faith is, is really significant within a, a Catholic or faith-based uh, liberal arts university is it provides a kind of surety to reason. And Plato himself warns of the way in which we become haters of reason, we become misologists if our arguments go around and around and around and there isn't some account that can be given of how both faith and reason cannot contradict, right? And that, that provides a kind of firm foundation to the faith. That extends into the way in which faith can be brought to bear in issues of public discourse. Finally, the, the third area, and I'm probably running a little long here. Um, <laughs> um, I've, I've got five minutes, um, but, you know, I. In, in, in this, I would consider, um, I mean, I don't know how to rank the, the three issues, but we, we have um, an errant and erroneous anthropology that's on display these days, right? People don't know what it is to be a human being. People are uncomfortable with their own humanity. They don't even know how to ask questions about what it means to be a human being, right? And, and when one hears the Aristotelian formulation that man is a rational animal, what does that really mean? I'm an animal, you know? But, but the, the, um, um, the questions of the relationship between science and philosophy 
and theology that go into an account of what it is to be a human being are best pursued within a liberal arts education, particularly a faith-based one, I would argue particularly a serious Catholic liberal arts university, and then raising the question of what is the purpose of life and pressing it forward, right? So the anthropological question, as St. John Paul II made clear time and time again, is absolutely fundamental. And I would argue that the anthropological question is how we get into a consideration of responsible citizenship because it's through reflecting upon what it is to be a human being and what the purpose of human life is that one reflects upon the common good and sees those political questions as of fundamental importance to making sense of your own humanity and how you're going to contribute to a, uh, a robust account of the common good. Thank you. Dr. Muscala? Thank you. Well, I'll start off by saying I agree with absolutely everything that uh, Dr. Sanford said. Um, but uh, I, uh, being an academic, I know that there's no way I will meet the five-minute limit unless I have a text. So I am uh, trying to ration myself here by having some guidelines of what will and will not get said. So I want to focus on uh, a couple of threats uh, to citizenship um, and to you know, the health of our, uh, of our society, the threat of technocracy and the threat of woke ideology. And let me preface this uh, by reminding all of us that you know, the Latin root of the term liberal is the verb uh, libera, right, free, and so liberal education is essentially you know, education for freedom. Uh, and I think that will help us to see the ways in which liberal education uh, is essential for teaching the next generation of citizens to resist some of these threats to, um, to our freedom. So first, with regard to technocracy, I mean, we've seen particularly uh, over the past couple of years how the empty you know, follow the science slogan with regard to COVID uh, policies has led people to believe that you know, difficult public policy questions involving complex trade-offs among multiple goods should basically be decided by unelected experts at the CDC. And while you know, the COVID example is the most obvious of this, I think it's emblematic of, of broader trends. And so this means that it's critically important to form citizens who recognize that technical expertise is never sufficient to answer moral questions or political questions, which are ultimately always moral questions because they're questions about justice, as Aristotle reminded us in book one of the politics. So liberal education helps students to understand this by helping students to see the inherent narrowness and insufficiency of technical knowledge, not discounting its usefulness, but putting it in its proper place. And it does this by introducing students to the full breadth and depth of the objects of human understanding. Now, yes, reason enables us to figure out the most efficient means to achieve our goals. That's what technical rationality is, and it's obviously important. Uh, but unfortunately, so much of our culture, including the dominant approaches to education, tend to reduce reason to this narrow technical sphere. Liberal education frees students from this kind of narrow, instrumental view of reason by taking seriously the search for wisdom, for ultimate truths, both theoretical and practical. And practical wisdom surpasses technological expertise because it's not only about the most effective means to achieve 
certain goals, but rather includes a discernment of which goals are truly worthy of pursuit. That is, which goals are genuinely good, genuinely conducive to a flourishing human life. And practical wisdom recognizes that there are many facets to human flourishing, including facets that can't be easily quantified or captured in the mathematical models favored by the technocrats. So, you know, to return to the COVID example, obviously good health is important for human flourishing, but it's not the only thing. Friendship, work, education, worship, religious community, all of these other things are crucial to a flourishing human life as well. And practical wisdom recognizes that the fanatical pursuit of one good to the severe detriment of all others is not a recipe for a flourishing life for either individuals or societies. And when, as is almost always the case, trade-offs among competing goods need to be made, we have to engage in practical deliberation, individually and as a society, to determine which goods to prioritize and to what extent. Technical knowledge needs to inform this deliberation, but it can't tell you what ought to be done. Right? And that's the, the crucial lesson of liberal education. It doesn't offer an easy solution but it prevents people from falling prey to the seemingly easy solution of the, the technocratic answer, which is always going to give short shrift to a number of important human values, especially those that can't be quantified. Uh, so second, uh, let me say a word about liberal education as an antidote to woke ideology. And I think that liberal education is an antidote to woke ideology because it's an antidote to ideology in general. Uh, if you understand ideology as any system of thought in which truth is subordinate to political or other ends. Indeed, what makes liberal education liberal or free is that it emphasizes the pursuit of truth for its own sake, even if that means questioning the received orthodoxies of the day and coming to some very unpopular conclusions. And I'd like to illustrate this uh, with you know, a real-life story of how liberal education changed the life of my own dissertation director, director and mentor, uh, Robbie George at, at Princeton, whose work I'm sure is well known uh, in this crowd. And back in the early days of his college career at Swarthmore University, he talks about how he had a kind of intellectual conversion. Um, you know, he was smart, ambitious, eager to fit in with the right people. And he knew what the sophisticated people thought about things. And he used his considerable argumentative skill to defend all the right views, which of course were politically liberal views on Swarthmore's campus. And then he read Plato's Gorgias. And he had a kind of King David with the prophet Nathan moment in which he realized that he was the villain of the story. In other words, he realized that he was acting like the sophist Gorgias in the dialogue, who was seeking more to win arguments than to actually discover the truth. And once he, just, he realized this about himself, it sparked a kind of conversion. And he opened his mind to actually seek to discover the truth, which led him to become conservative and to become a leading conservative intellectual. Right? So that's, you know, that's the result of how a truly liberal education, encouraging students to question orthodoxies, all orthodoxies, and, and to really think and seek the truth regardless of how popular or unpopular that truth might be, uh, can genuinely change lives um, and influence the culture more broadly. And, and I've seen these kinds of conversions uh, in many of my own students at, at the Catholic University of, of America who've you know, changed their minds on issues you know, 
ranging from abortion to gender ideology to you know basically every every issue that's that's out there when they've been encouraged to and prodded to actually consider the arguments and evidence with a view toward the truth um, regardless of whether that truth lines up with what's politically popular or not so I think it's encouraging to see that liberal education really can change hearts and minds by opening students to the genuine search for truth and liberating them from a dogmatic adherence to dominant orthodoxies. Thank you. Dr. Roberts. Uh, thanks, Jerry, and, and welcome to all of you. And what I'll do in my response to this, <clears throat> and be sure to keep tabs on me, because I have a lot to say. Is is really build on what Melissa and JJ have said, and and maybe as a historian, think about four or five parts of the public square where we see the the very clear symptoms of not enough liberal learning. The first is politics. You might expect the president of the Heritage Foundation to start there, especially on a day when, for those of you not in the policy and political world, you shouldn't be worried about the news in the devil city known as Washington. And that's the omnibus bill, which is just part of policy, but it's a great frustration. I say this on behalf of all of us at the Heritage Foundation, where we are focused on policy, not politics. And, and this is a problem on both sides of the spectrum, of the political spectrum. And it is that it's filled with sophists. And I won't go, get into the weeds too far because I want to stick to just a few minutes here, but it, it just suffice it to say, if you're willing to, to trust me on this, that both sides are members of both sides, I should say, because there are exceptions to this, thankfully. In our political debate today on this bill about spending, where we've rolled in aid to Ukraine, it's not even a question about that. It's a question about the following. You can't even engage in a conversation about the truth. I've had multiple text messages today with members of Congress, good guys and gals, about why Heritage is opposed to that omnibus bill. This is a comment for Heritage, not the University of Dallas or Catholic University of America. And we, we, we're opposed for a number of reasons. We can't even talk about that because they have their three talking points that their party apparatus published this morning and they have to stick to. And that is really a symptom of the state of education in this country. And I, I engaged one of my friends across the street on that point today, and I haven't gotten a reply, which tells me that perhaps I was right. But the, <laughs> the, the point is, there would be many examples in the world of politics. And you contrast that with the debates at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, and think about the ability of those founders to have disagreements without being quarrelsome. Sometimes it got so close to quarreling that they had to settle it over some scotch or some beer at the tavern, but they were at least willing to do that. That's the key thing. The second thing which I think about from my days as president of Wyoming Catholic College, when, like JJ, I was trying to explain to prospective parents, students, donors, why liberal arts education was so important, the biggest advocate for that during my time there was the Wall Street Journal. And they said in the realm of business, what business owners needed the most wasn't a, a young person with the best specialized skills in whatever that industry was, but the ability to think and the ability to apply that thinking with high integrity in a specialized setting. They were willing to spend their money, the business owner, on that specialization. And, and I, I am gratified that the Wall Street Journal and a large number, of, an increasing number of businesses are recognizing that. But the third area I would say, which might surprise some, is leisure. I think about this a lot. 
from my, my time in Wyoming, where, of course, the college there taught all the students how to ride horses. One president, you're looking at them, taught them how to shoot guns and fly fish. All of that to say that these are very fruitful, intrinsically good pursuits in leisure, spending time in God's first book. And I've even told my younger colleagues here at Heritage when they ask me for advice, get outside. Even if you're, maybe especially if you're in the middle of a city, liberal learning teaches us that. It, it teaches us to be humble, especially in a liberal arts institution that is faith-based, in the eyes of God, whatever our faith tradition may be. And the last is humor. Our inability to laugh as a people at one another, not in an ugly way, with one another, is a symptom of an education system that's broken. And it's not just because we no longer have these touchstones in reading that allow us to understand the Shakespearean reference or the biblical reference. It makes us humorless. And as a historian, I can tell you, that's one of the very concerning signs about our society. Now, ultimately, I'm an optimist, and I'm an optimist because of the institutions represented here by other two panelists and others. But these are serious problems that affect our discourse, not just in a, in a political arena, but most importantly, just running into one another on the sidewalk. To go further on the civic implications of this, what, what kind of citizen does a republic need to flourish? And what does liberal education do with citizenship? Dr. Muscala, I'm going to take a well, I mean, I can I can piggyback on the on the last point about about leisure um, and and the need to exercise. Well, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. I mean, I think you can answer it in a sense in 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 one word the way that the founders did is recognizing that you need a virtuous citizenry uh, in order to have uh, a free country. Right? That freedom requires uh, virtue. Freedom requires uh, a, a real competence among the people to govern themselves. Um, in the absence of that, well, then you need kind of top-down governance uh, to restrain people's passions, right? So you need uh, people to develop virtue, to develop self-restraint in view of the genuine good, um, and that that's you know that's obviously absent in so many ways um, in our in our culture. And part of it is that you you see it in in a in a crisis of genuine leisure. Right, and I, I just love the book um, *Leisure: the, the Basis of Culture* by by Joseph Pieper. And it, um, when I used to teach uh, freshman introductory courses, I would always weave it in because it has so much to say to our current culture, and particularly to uh, all of the um, the pathologies of the digital world, where people are constantly substituting illusion for uh, for reality. Right? And, uh, and that's, that's just the perversion of, of leisure, which ought to be a moment, as Pieper says, to, to kind of enter into a receptive attitude of appreciation of, of reality as gift, uh, stepping back from the attitude of, of kind of fretful attempting to dominate reality in order to make it work for our purposes. Right, uh, which is the kind of job of what people calls the workaday world with its utilitarian sort of focus. Leisure is what enables us to remain human because it's, it's the, the realm where we actually focus on those things that are good in themselves, not good merely for further utilitarian 
ends. And, and, I, and I fear that we've lost that in a culture where leisure just becomes escape, instead of where leisure becomes the arena to, uh, to seek genuine goods, including, and leisure, and, and Pieper emphasizes this, um, religion, right? That he, he sees religion and religious worship actually as the, the paramount paradigm example of leisure because it's, it's the most fully free activity, um, the most fully gratuitous thing, right? The sacrifice aspect of worship, the sacrifice of time, the sacrifice of, of money, the sacrifice of time that could be spent doing useful things and just a kind of pouring it out um, on an activity that has no utilitarian end right, is, is actually rest restorative of our, of our humanity um, and reminds us of the great dignity of the human person, the transcendent calling of the, of the human person. And, and that, I think, is something that liberal education um, can remind students of, can, can open them to. Dr. Robert, you've been involved with education from K through college and your own graduate work. How would you answer that question? What kind of a citizen does a republic need to flourish? And what does liberal education have to do with citizenship? Well, the citizens that a republic needs need to have the two sets of skills, if you will, which is not to, to reduce it to just skills, but it's probably the, the, the most common way to put it. And the first is just the what I would call hard skills of reading, writing, and arithmetic. And it used to be, as the liberal, liberal arts tradition was beginning to wane in this country in the 50s and 60s, accelerated in the 1970s, not coincidentally with the founding of the US Department of Education. But that's <laughs> a comment for another day. That what was happening at least up until 1979 was that each year American students were learning better, learning more, for all intents and purposes, there were some exceptions. But now, not only has the liberal arts tradition waned, especially among government-funded schools, but the hard skills, of course, have waned, so much so that each year our students as a, as a nation, as a republic, fall further behind relative to other countries. The second category of, of skills, if you will, are, are what I would call soft skills. They're skills about a belief in this country, not a blind patriotism, not a blind nationalism for sure, but a, an optimism that comes from an understanding our inheritance, our inheritance as Americans, our inheritance from a very beautiful English tradition, a very beautiful, although troubled, Roman tradition, Jewish tradition, even for those of us who are not Jewish, and of course, the ancient Greeks. All of that to say that our education fails miserably, with a few exceptions, at forming students to wake up to be grateful every day to be Americans. And by that, I'm not saying they darn well better do the Pledge of Allegiance, although that would be nice if they used their free will to do so, but to understand as human persons that what they have been given, what we have been given to wake up in a republic, this republic is the greatest gift that any higher power could bestow on a people in this life. And our education system, especially the trillions of dollars that we spend on public education, is not only a failure, it's harmful to that. And therefore, we are living through, to end on a much po more positive note, the rebirth of that. This panel is but one small part of a rejuvenation of a tradition that cannot die, because the truth never dies. 
And when we talk about restoring the institutions of America, you're seeing even some government-funded systems realize that the lessons of overwrought COVID shutdowns, the lessons of the last several years of very poor educational attainment are to go back to what has worked. And not just for a small, elite subset of Americans, but for everybody. And I think we're on the brink of a golden age of liberal arts education. Dr. Sanford. Yeah, I, I, when I think about the kind of citizens this republic needs, um, I, I think first and foremost, we need citizens who realize they're citizens. And I mean that sincerely. I, I don't think many young people today have really grappled with their, their citizenship. They don't think of themselves in those terms. They don't grasp the way in which being a citizen bears certain responsibilities for how they care for the public goods. So um, I, I agree entirely with that, that uh, fundamental principle of gratitude, right? To take gratitude in their citizenship. But instead, what I'm seeing in a lot of young people today um, is a kind of, we, we talked earlier about the, the surety that students will falsely take in ideology, right? Kind of resting in a, in a false security they, they feel like they need to take a position on everything. And they haven't had time to think about all the things that they express really strong opinions about, right? They know just what they think because they read it on a Twitter feed or they, they encountered it on a television show, okay? And they, everything has become politicized. And yet, ironically, they don't think about themselves as a citizen. The, the other extreme I see on this particular spectrum is apathy. Right? A lot of people have just checked out. I don't care. Right? I don't care anymore. And underlying that apathy can sometimes be a reaction to the, the politicization of everything, but it can also be a, a sort of grasping onto a major undercurrent that's part of our society, which is the thought that life is about maximizing personal preferences, right? What it is for me to really be successful is to achieve as many of the things I prefer to have as I possibly can. And that is deeply dissatisfying and no surprise we have people who are struggling with depression and emotional challenges on a scale that we've never seen before. So a, a liberal education can protect against both those extremes by breaking down the kind of false security that one has in just subscribing to any number of ideological positions because one needs to really be able to defend a position him or herself. And that takes, again, a lot of uh, practice. And then if it's, if it's a, a liberal education that takes seriously American founding principles, not just a reflection upon the common good, but the common good for a contemporary American citizen, then students will be made to see that responsibility goes hand in hand with their reflection upon what it is to be a citizen. And um, that builds forth a kind of, of um, embrace of, of gratitude and an acknowledgement that uh, there are ways in which we flourish that depend upon virtues that are exercised for the sake of others, right? Justice, charity, those are other regarding virtues. 
that are not focused upon the maximization of my personal preferences. And in fact, those virtues are more deeply satisfying as an individual human being than are many of the other practices that are condoned in our society today. And I think an excellent liberal education can cultivate not just the appreciation for those virtues, the nurturing of them in the individuals in whom they're cultivated, but, but the exercise, the activity of those virtues within the public sphere as responsible citizens. But are we asking too much from liberal education thinking in these grand terms of shoring up the republic? Dr. Roberts. I was afraid you were going to start with me. <laughs> you, you ended with optimism, so. <laughs> so are, are you suggesting I should start here? <laughs> yes, uh, I'm happy to start there, but the answer is no, we're not asking too much of a tradition. And the reason is, uh, first of all, the, the liberal arts tradition has withstood far greater threats in human history in the time that, that it has been around than the nihilism that is so well funded in the United States. And you say, well, Kevin, that's a pretty pessimistic way to start. But actually, I mean it when I say it. And, and I can think of, I give you a whole bunch of examples of this, not just the institutions here, but especially at the K through 12 level of very different groups of people, some of them faith-based, some of them not faith-based, who are building liberal arts schools. They're in the public sector, the private sector, K through 12, higher ed. There are even reading groups and businesses doing this. All of that to say, there are a handful of liberal arts scholars, advocates, who argue that the tradition of the liberal arts is for the liberal arts to be held by just a handful of people. And I, with all due respect, and cheerfully to be disagreeable but not quarreling, they're dead wrong. And it leads me to the second point, which is that one of the reasons I believe that in spite of all of our challenges as a republic, that in fact our best days are ahead, I don't mean that in a hollow optimism way, is because it's actually mainly because I see a rejuvenation among liberal arts. And therefore, those of us who understand the liberal arts, I'll, I'll end on this, Jerry, have to be very focused on being evangelists for it. It is not enough for us to be parochial to just our school, however great it may be, or just our type of school. We need to be all of the above. If a neighborhood charter school wants to have a liberal arts curriculum, and we went to a place that the whole curriculum was liberal arts every year we were there, but that charter school can only pull off half of that, celebrate them, don't condemn them. Welcome them, because this is how we're going to take back this republic. Dr. Sanford. Wow, that was a great sermon. And, and Sorry, I, was it <laughs> I, I agree 100%. Um, I, I take great um, cheer from the fact that the, the public charter liberal education model has been taking off, particularly in Arizona and Texas. Three of our children attend one of these schools, but also within faith-based institutions on the K-12 level. The, the model is being reintroduced, and the University of Dallas is actually involved in helping a number of those faith-based institutions, not just Catholic, not just Protestant, but Jewish as well, um, with a group of schools in New Jersey. That's extremely encouraging. It's encouraging because I agree with Kevin, we're not asking too much of liberal education to see it as being the very tip of the spear when it comes to renewing culture. Right? Our, 
what, what it is to be educated is to be building culture. Whether you're poorly educated or not, right? So when I'm talking about a renewed culture, I mean one that is renewed along the lines of what we've just been discussing. And indeed, a liberal education is up to that task, but we need to be smart. And the way we've been smart lately, and going back to the roots, this is something that Plato knew and reflected at length, both in the Republic and in his laws on the kind of education that we need. And I think a lot of, of us who are part of this conversation, um, our, our forebears, they took their eye off that ball. And uh, K-12 education, college education, that was left to those who had a very different idea of what it is to be well-educated, what it is to be a responsible citizen, what it is to be a human being, and to dedicate oneself to um, a life lived in genuine justice and exercising real charity. So um, I'm very grateful that we're thinking about these things now on a much larger level. And um, another, another theme, just to tag on here at the very end, I, I sometimes think of, of a liberal education as, as being a kind of friendship for the sake of friendship. And this is a way in which one can encompass I would say the, the whole panoply of topics we've been talking about in this conversation, if, if you realize there's, there's a multiplicity to the sort of friendship, right? So we have isolationism, we, we have the protest culture, we have cancel culture, we have um, various ideological pathologies that are rampant. And a real friendship is, is not a cheap friendship. And, and within a liberal education, it needs to be first and foremost, a friendship with the truth. You need to have real friendships that can form between professors and students. Those professors need to be worthy of the trust that students place upon them, which means institutions need to be serious about finding faculty members who are really dedicated to leading well their students. And then the friendships between the students, ultimately cultivating a friendship for God, with God, is the final purpose, I would argue, of a liberal education. And along the way, the, the reflection upon the broader culture right, hits each of those things. Culture is not just a matter of policy. It's not just a matter of politics. It's, it's a matter of those fundamental institutions that build up the, the, the very structures, the mediating institutions, as Yuval Levin has called them, in, in a time to build. And a liberal education is dedicated to the purposes of cultivating citizens who will be the leaders within those institutions that provide the very structure of our broader society. Before we turn to the audience, Dr. Mescala. I'll, I'll only add uh, briefly to that because you have both uh, very eloquently covered a lot. But um, just to, to put the counterpoint in a sense, you know, are we asking too much? Um, I mean, in a way, I, I agree with everything that you said, that if education isn't going to do it, well, what is going to do it? But I. Uh, but I want to emphasize the point that education isn't just a matter of what happens in a school. And in fact, that we need to remember that schools are there to help the parents who are the primary educators of their children. So however good educational institutions are, they won't be sufficient to form good citizens and heal the ills of our society if we don't have strong families uh, with committed parents uh, who take care of their children and are invested in their children's education. Um, and so I, I think you know, a, a reminder of the centrality of the family as the essential mediating institution, not the only one, uh, but 
the kind of sine qua non, right, foundational uh, institution of society um, is is crucial. And you know, there's a there's a helpful relationship between the family and the and the school that schools can teach virtues that help prepare children to be faithful spouses and and devoted parents. Um, but there's just no substitute for getting that education in virtue in the family, for getting that um, exposure to the idea of love for the truth um, in the family. And, and if you don't have that in the family, it's much harder to inculcate that in students um, in the school. We're now open to questions from the audience. And there's a microphone here, two of them. So. Hi, uh, thank you so much. My name is Chris Hayes. I work here at the Simon Center. <clears throat> um, this is a, a phen phenomenal talk. Fully agree uh, on all points. Um, so this is a little bit of a devil's advocate question. Um, I can hear in my head some of my peers from, from grad school uh, pointing out that liberal and, and citizen uh, and a lot of the traditions we discussed are, are specifically Western civ basically, and that's it's the argument, um, which I support very much. Uh, but I, I wonder um, how to respond to that criticism, uh, fundamentally, where people make the case that um, uh, a more relativistic approach, uh, cultural plurality, sort of emerges out of the Western tradition, but then carries us away from it uh, and, and validates a relativism that we see around us. Uh, and so I would submit to that, is there something unique about Western civilization, something that sets it apart, perhaps by luck, um, the, a marriage of a monotheism and, and reason in a way that hasn't occurred elsewhere that would help us make that argument? Yeah, um, did you want to direct it to a particular one of us? Uh, Anyone who feels Feels like yeah, I mean, he was looking at you, Dr. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's an interesting question. There, there are multiple parts there, and I, I won't be able to address each of them. But, you know, I, um, the, the, the central line of saying, you know, multiculturalism emerges from Western civilization and has now come to chew it up, so to speak. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's one thing that I want to say something briefly about. And then this, this question, is there something unique to um, Western civilization? Well, yes. And I would argue it's, it's not just accidental. Um, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about um, Greek thinkers. And um, um, there, it, it is a remarkable thing that certain questions were asked. And, and you know, one accidental feature that sometimes put forward in these arguments is that um, it, it's an accident to the grammar of, of the language that you frame questions a particular way that all of a sudden you start thinking about. Um, um, you know, what, what is piety? You wouldn't, you wouldn't um, ask that question without a TSD structure, um, one, one might argue. Um, there, there is no um, accidental accounting for Exodus 3.14, right? So, um, God revealing himself in some fundamental way to uh, Moses. And that, that encounter 
um, is is absolutely unique. You look at other ancient religions, and and one might work up to thinking about God, um, sometimes in a quasi-monotheistic way, but but it seems to follow the order of political structure, right? And and um, within Egypt, this was this was utilized to uh, great um, political power effect. So um, there's there's something unique there, and then. Um, a, a unique combination of that kind of encounter with the divine one that um, mixes with Greco-Roman thought to um, um, a, in a unique way. And, and this is why I was talking earlier about the dialogue between faith and reason. That's, that's, that's not, a, that's not a, like a side conversation within Western civilization. That is the conversation. And, and working out what does that entail for us now. Because of, going back now to the, the first part, because of the, the mode of, of argumentation that is part and parcel to the West, and, and I would argue, you know, there's um, the, the, the uh, uh, agam, the, the contest, right, which you find in, in, in Homer exemplified in, in beautiful um, um, and, and horrifying uh, ways, um, that's part of argumentation, right? So the, the, the push and pull, the, the, the jousting that goes on, and, and it's true that other cultures don't have that as much, but I would argue that that's not a foreign experience. It, it's, it's natural to the way discursive reasoning works. It's part of the structure of our intellect to engage in that. And that is imported to a quick effect in cultures that may not have had it um, so significantly. My, my, one of my uh, dissertation readers um, was Chinese. He, he died uh, tragically young, 54 years old, grew up in China, um, was a, a Confucian. His family had, had no experience of, of university education, but he tested really well, and, and the government sent him off to university studies. And, he won uh, an award that sent him out of China, ultimately to um, um, Oxford University. And um, he, he had, uh, we, we would talk about this at length because his early experience was, was very non-Western. Um, he was a student of, of Aristotle and Plato and, and was, was convinced that he found something of, of universal um, uh, value in their mode of argumentation and um, saw it really to be a, a great treasure to his own culture that um, Aristotle and Plato had made their way there. So multiculturalism doesn't need to become um, an abandonment of fundamental principles, but, but a mode of argumentation that, that's conflict um, embracing without quarreling, um, that can exercise a deep respect for a, a foreign culture, and when you come to these points of, of disagreement on a, on a large scale, I think that the Western mode of argumentation allows you to enter in and see the, the arguments from uh, another's perspective, and um, if you can prove that you can resolve them better because of the tradition that you've brought in, then um, you've, you've shown a kind of mastery there that's persuasive to those um, who've uh, been invaded, so to speak, I don't, this is not a matter of colonization, but, but an invitation to enter into a mode of reasoning that's uh, abundantly fruitful.
we have if I could just add briefly to that, I mean, I also think that there's something centrally and crucially important about the fact that with the marriage of kind of Greco-Roman philosophy and Christianity, you have a conception of God who is logos, right? God who is freedom, who creates through the word, who creates rationally. And therefore you have a fundamental kind of foundational cultural view of the world as intelligible, um, uh, uh, of our minds as capable of knowing objective truth, and of the, the quest for truth as sanctioned by God, um, as actually part of our, our mission as those who are called upon to, to understand and steward creation and bring it to, to fulfillment. So it's no surprise that you know, all of the development of modern science and then technological advancements that came out of that began in, in the West because you had the kind of foundational framework for a faith in the intelligibility of reality and in the goodness of, of knowing it. Um, that was just not as clear, I think, in, in other cultures. Time for one more question. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I will just identify myself as a, an alumni of the Heritage Foundation, and it was an honor to be a part of it. Um, so tonight I came because of you, because when I saw the invitation, it raised the question of citizenship. And for me as an immigrant, when I first came to this country, you handed a, a book um, about citizenship in the United States, and I studied that book. Um, and in recent years, it is quite evident that um, there are elements within our society and within our governments that are intent on undermining the very foundations on which this country was built. And it is being done by institutions that are obliged um, to uphold those very principles and to ensure that the rule of law is um, upheld and serves as a basis of the functioning of our society. It is being done in secret and um, many Americans don't even realize what is happening. I, tonight you talked about the, the, the rebuilding of institutions and you talked about, um, you talked about faith and you talked about, the third one was, um, oh, it eludes me, but I, I just wonder, in a practical sense, um, how you might impart or how we might impart uh, the principles that you just expressed in a practical sense so that um, Americans can be educated as to the value of our citizenship and what is the reality of what we are living in today. Thank thanks. you. Well, thanks so much for that thoughtful question. Thanks for your service to the Heritage Foundation. There are so many Heritage alumni out there. It's very gratifying that you would be here as one of them. Well, as you might have gathered, I focus a lot on practical steps. And so what I would encourage you and everyone in this audience, those of you who are online to do, is to, to take great inspiration from our panelists here and go home tonight and make a commitment over the next month to find three liberal arts institutions or institutions who can become liberal arts institutions and lean into them. 
leaning into them, because uh, I know you'll ask a follow-up question, what does that mean? It means um, if you're the giving kind, give them money, $5, $5 million, whatever it is. The second is volunteer. The third and most important is encourage them. And encouragement looks like when maybe there is a child or a grandchild of yours or a friend, a younger friend who's saying, I don't know whether to go in business or go teach. Go teach. I don't know what to major in. Major in something where you can go be a faculty member at one of these institutions. Uh, I've got a friend, say, just hypothetically, uh, ma'am, let's say you've got a friend who is thinking about opening a school, a public charter school or a private school. It's hard work. I used to have hair before I did this, <laughs> but you know what? It's worth it. And the last thing I would say is, and I don't, wanna, I don't mean this in a partisan sense. I mean it in a philosophical sense. The other side, the side that does not have an embrace with the truth, is very radical. They want us to be discouraged. The way we don't be discouraged is to go rebuild these institutions. And by rebuilding, we're not talking about each of us as individuals doing everything. Each of us as individuals taking a small part, playing a small part in those institutions. Start local, start with those, those uh, community organizations and encourage people. I'm telling you, there are several hundred people here or watching online that if each of us in the next month just plays a tiny, tiny part in three of those institutions, we will have gotten about the work of taking back this country. I'll stop there. Well, it's a, it's a perfect conclusion. I mean, um, in, in terms of uh, investing yourself into those institutions that are striving to shore up our, our democracy, our way of life, our commitment to foundational principles. And, and I, I, I think the task falls to me when we had a, a brief discussion about what this would look like to, to say just a few concluding remarks. But before I do that, did you want to add anything to Dr. Roberts' comment? Uh, only brief, briefly to say that not to underestimate uh, what one courageous person willing to stand up for those principles can do. Um, because, I mean, if, if you look at, you know, pushback against uh, some of the, the very dangerous ideological trends that are, that are being foisted on our children in the schools, for instance, it's some very courageous moms, very often, willing to stand up and say unpopular things to fight back against the school board or the principal. Um, it's, you know, transformations, even political transformations in Virginia, right? It could be traced back to, you know, one or two people in Loudoun County standing up and saying, you know what, I'm not going to go along with this, and I don't care if it costs me my job. I mean, that takes real courage. Um, but unless people have that courage to say, no, this is a lie and this is harmful, and I will not go along with it, um, then the other side's going to win. But with courage, um, I think we can win these battles because the truth is on our side. That's a fantastic comment. And indeed, you know, um, both, both sides of that faith, reason, uh, conversation that's part of, of our Western inheritance, they started really small. And, and at critical moments, it was just one or two or 12 or um, however many people who, who made the transformative transformative difference. So I, I just want to say a word of thanks, um, uh, certainly to our, our panelists for, for the fantastic conversation, to Professor Wegemer, who um, has been at the University of Dallas teaching English for many years, fully committed also to the Center for St. Thomas More Studies, and that would be one of those institutions worthy of your, your consideration and following 
um, Dr. Roberts' advice. This, this um, um, conversation on the University of Dallas side is the result of, of a series of lectures and engagements that I've been involved in since I was inaugurated as president. We're calling it ARITE, Renewing Culture Through Excellence in Education. And I'll be talking to Carter Sneeds, who I spoke with uh, Frank Beckwith recently. Uh, we have many other speakers that um, you can trace if you, if you go to our, our website. But um, when we were thinking about an, an event in DC, I was um, uh, just blown away by the generosity of, of Kevin and his team. It helps that our trustee, Bridget Wagner, is here. Um, but, um, and, and so it, Heritage is sort of the, the first place we think of when we think of something to do in DC. But Kevin has, has, has been a, a tremendous supporter of my work and um, in many respects uh, a mentor and um, a fellow um, traveler with working on a, a whole series of, of um, uh, fraught questions. And he's somebody that I can turn to for sage advice. Uh, he's been a university president before. And I just want to thank you for um, all the help that you've been offering. And um, it's, it's been tremendous. I think you and I met for the first time maybe six, seven years ago at a, a Center for Ethics and Culture event at, at the University of Notre Dame. And I've just been so impressed with Dr. Moskela's work. And I would encourage you to look at it. Uh, we, we've had uh, underwriters on the UD side of this equation um, that I, I just want to mention and thank briefly. So uh, Kelly and Joe Arms. Joe Arms is one of our trustees. Elizabeth and Richard Husseini. Richard Husseini is the chair of our board. And then Nancy and Sanford Robertson. Nancy's a former board member. But they're the major underwriters of this series, Arate, Renewing Culture Through Excellence in Education. And I'm so grateful to the Heritage staff who are here. I want to recognize a couple other trustees. We have. Trustee Emmett Flood in the audience, and Trustee Mary Capizzi in the audience. Any trustees I failed to mention? Um, <laughs> oh, uh, Trustee Lewis Brown, who had a burning question that was not um, answered. So we'll talk about that soon after um, the conversation tonight. Um, but, but thanks for being here again. And thanks for the work, whatever you do in, in your um, um, in your, your walk of life. Um, and thank you for your commitment to um, liberal arts citizenship and the future of the republic. Thank you.